You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Back in February in episode 111, we interviewed writer Sharon Bradley to discuss her research into homelessness in Australia and uncover the shocking truth that women over 50 are the fastest growing cohort. It seems incredible that in 2020, women are still significantly worse off financially than men. There's a pay gap of 13.9% in Australia. Women retire with on average 27% less in super than men, and 80% of women don't retire with enough money to live a comfortable life. We wanted to start the conversation in February and continue throughout this year to put a spotlight on financial literacy for women. This has been hijacked over the last few months by the coronavirus, so today we're getting back on track. What can be done to create change? How can we equip the next generation of young women to avoid this pattern? In this episode, we picked the brains of one young woman who has embarked on this mission, financial planner Jess Brady. Having worked for CBA, Macquarie Bank and Zurich, Jess co-founded Fox and Hare Financial Advice in 2017 after realising that young people were more interested in planning their meals and holidays than their financial futures. Jess is passionate about bringing diversity to financial advice and making it more accessible, especially for women. And she's recently launched Ladies Talk Money, an eight-part video series tackling the complex issues that keep women from having financial security. Welcome, Jess. Let's talk money. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey Jess, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks Chris. <laughs> Good to chat. Um, I guess um, we, we've had lots of conversations around, uh, you know, the impacts of money on, you know, different people and different generations and, you know, different um, economic sort of backgrounds. What made you kind of tailor and target sort of women and what made you start uh, Ladies Talk Money? Sure. So, As mentioned in the intro, I worked in financial services for over a decade and actually my clients when I was, you know, in the lacks of Macquarie were financial advisors. And what became really obvious to me was that financial advice in Australia is often targeted to wealthy white men. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Wealthy white men do need financial advice, I'm sure, but that's not the only person in the in this society that we live in today that really does need financial advice. So my business partner and I in 2017 started Fox and Hare. And Fox and Hair is a financial advice business and we really work with people who are 25 to 45. And so that's women, that's men. We work a lot with the LGBTIQ plus community. Basically, we want it to be a safe space for younger people um, to just get their financial world sorted. Younger people in Australia are highly aspirational and they want everything and we want it now. Um, And it's about, well, how do you get there? And then I guess what was emerging from the conversations that I was having was just this real lack of confidence particularly with women around money and this feeling of shame and guilt and and really feeling like, you know, everyone else has got everything sorted except me. And it just became really obvious that we need a platform so that we can, you know, really tackle the last stereotype, which is women are bad with money and women aren't good with money. And then, you know, they spend everything. And, you know, you I think that this is largely because we don't teach people about money, guys or girls. Um, And that women have this self-fulfilling prophecy where they don't think they're good with money. And so they don't engage with, you know, financial literacy. And then if they enter a partnership, typically someone else takes over the the finances in the house and then they just lean further and further out. So Ladies Talk Money was born to create a safe space to just talk about money and to be able to say without any shame or stigma, I don't know enough about that. Where can I find out more and start the conversation, um, which is really exciting. I'm quite astounded to hear, I mean, because obviously, you know, 
I'm not going to give my exact age, but mm-hmm. I'm in that cohort of uh, the growing cohort of homelessness. Um, <laughs> it's not going to happen to me, of course, but mm-hmm. I'm astounded to hear that women in their 20s entering into a relationship with a man, assuming that they're heterosexual, mm-hmm. um, would defer, even today they'd still defer to the male partner in financial matters. Is that really still happening in a, in a, in a significant sense? Yes, and it was, a, it was a shock to me because I just had assumed, similar to you by the sounds of it, that this was, you know, of eras and generations that had gone by. But, no, I am seeing that pretty regularly and it doesn't matter um, what education level or income level someone has. Look, naturally in a partnership, one person tends to take over more of the financial stuff in a relationship. But I have had, um, you know, people who are very well educated say to me, oh, I'll just let my partner deal with it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is your money too. You need to come along for the ride. So, yeah, I think this is definitely still a problem that we need to tackle. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The first six well 2007 to 12 I was dealing with lots of older clients in their 60s 70s 80s um and 100% it was definitely generally always the male um side of it and I had cases where uh the guy would even tell me not to tell his wife about certain money um I'd had uh after deaths I'd actually had women find out that the husband had money that they didn't even know about and things like that um I do think it's shifting a little bit, but yeah. it's still in through in my, my clientele are very similar to you, you know, in that 25 to 45. And it, it, there's always usually one more dominant partner. Um, mm. And I would say if the scales are kind of evenly kind of split, I would say it's definitely more on the kind of male side, which is quite frustrating. And, and it's, it's when, it, when you're right, it's 100% it's a partnership and both need to be heard. Um, unfortunately, one usually dominates the other and generally it's the male. Um, yeah. Should... And what I find interesting, Chris, is a couple of years ago, a really interesting piece of research came out from one of the financial um, advisor associations in Australia. And what it looked at was financial literacy through a gendered lens. And so it looked at two things. It looked at competence, competency levels, and it looked at confidence levels. And so um you can Im- probably imagine by virtue of what I've been saying so far, what the mm. research found was that by and large, men feel more confident yeah. with money-related matters. And yet when we looked at the competency levels through a gendered lens, they were in fact about equal. <laughs> yeah. oh, I think this is fantastic. You've heard in in, um, in recruitment, uh, years ago I was in recruitment, we had this thing called the Peter Principle. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't, no. So the Peter principle in a job sense is that, um, and, and it is men, men will rise to the level of their incompetence. And and then I think it was um, Hewlett Packard or IBM, one of those two, that did this uh, research some time ago that looked into why women weren't moving up the ranks within the organisation. And they worked out, I think it was something like women would only apply for a job mm-hmm. if they felt they could do sort of, upwards of 95% of everything that was listed in the job description or the job ad, whereas men would apply if they could do, say, 60%, um, which you can understand why then they would rise to the level of their incompetence because they'd get the job, they could do 60% of it, they never actually master 100 and that's where they stay, whereas women wouldn't, wouldn't, push themselves and it sounds like a similar thing's playing out in in the the domestic financial space. Mm. Yeah and look I think it's really important to also call out that that research showed that if you have a higher level of financial literacy irrespective of what gender you identify as um, it improves all areas of your life. Your life satisfaction score goes up. Your relationship score goes up. Like financial literacy and having a higher level of financial literacy can change your life across many different um, elements. And so I am really passionate about this. I'm certainly not anti-men. That's really important to call out. Um, Mm. But I just think that women need a lot of help to feel confident and to want to lean in. And I think everyone benefits from that. I think you're really right as well because uh, what I've seen over the years as well is that, um, you know, a lot of men's traits in terms of uh, taking on risk, making quicker decisions, potentially um, aren't great for financial outcomes, right? Because what we want to do is we want to kind of take action and, you know, solve the problem and invest. And unfortunately they, they lead into sort of get rich quick and, mm. um, um, 
and I, and generally it's um, taking more risk than you need to. Like you start playing with Forex and mm-hmm. stock trading and, um, you know, and it's, it's what ends up happening is they don't they just rush in without actually taking the time to truly understand what they're trying to achieve. And I feel like, you know, this is not about genders, but I feel like a women sometimes sit back on the fence, try to gather the information and then try to really figure out what the right path is. And I think approaching finances, it's a much better approach to, you know, just gather information, really consider things rather than just taking one piece of information and then taking action. Yeah, there was some great research done a couple of years ago um, around portfolio managers and women portfolio managers versus guys. And um, what they looked at was the fact that female portfolio managers, they trade less and they do have an element of, of risk in, 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 um, you know, thought really well thought through as part of their portfolio management. And yeah, it was just quite interesting to see the outcome of that. And, you know, the concept was, well, do women um, make better portfolio managers than guys, irrespective of the fact that by and large, um, that space is dominated by men. Yeah. Interesting piece of research. But, you know, what's funny in a day-to-day sense from a financial advice perspective, you know, sometimes I have to have pretty courageous conversations about taking less risk for some of our members and then really also yeah. encouraging particularly women to take more risk. Mm. That, that comes back to that confidence bias, doesn't it? Or overconfidence bias. You know, we see it buying property as well. Obviously we see it at auctions that people um, who are more inclined. And and I think, you know, once again, it, we don't want to go in the, the, the slamming of men, but no. there is a definite um display amongst more men of that overconfidence by uh, overconfidence bias sorry then there is a display of that amongst women or potentially other genders um be, and and I think too because just socially you know white you know middle class men you know society has been constructed by and for them and so therefore it, they haven't had to really fight you know, and I know this is sort of getting into more philosophical feminist uh, argument, but they haven't had to fight for the same things that others have had to fight for and so therefore it's easier. So therefore there's this assumption that they can do it and mm. and that's probably underlying a lot of this. Wouldn't you agree or yeah. would you disagree? I, no, I do agree. I mean if you look at superannuation, by and large that is designed for that type of avatar, someone who never leaves the workforce, someone who stays in the workforce and participates the whole time full-time, you know, the constructs like that have been designed with that sort of um, stereotype in mind and that is not helping a huge proportion of society. So I definitely think that that sentiment is true. So what do you think is the solution? Do you have a solution in mind? I mean, if you're talking about that that fundamentally women are still in a situation where they're deferring their, um, I guess, if they're in a heterosexual relationship and with a man or even if they're single or not coupled with a man, that they're potentially that they're delaying or deferring uh, financial decisions because they're thinking that they're not confident and they're not competent, even though they may be, and they have a level of shame and guilt around that and they think that everyone else has got it sorted out, not them, and so they don't speak up about it. How can we get to a point where we demystify it and actually open the doors for them? I think it starts with one very small thing, and that is we need to start talking about money. I really believe that the fact that we do not feel confident to have money-based conversations in 2020 is a crime and it helps no one. Um, yes, we can talk about all of the structural inequality and that definitely needs to be addressed, but I also think that that can sometimes make people tap out because it's too big and too overwhelming and it doesn't feel like I can have any impact and so, you know, I put my head in the sand. I think the best thing that we can do is start to normalise money-based conversations. And to be perfectly frank, I think COVID is helping that in some way because Mm. the very first time we're having conversations like, you know, have you lost your job? Are you still getting paid? Are you on JobSeeker? Are you on JobKeeper? Did you take money out of your super? Like these are conversations around money that we haven't had before. Mm. And I'm, you know, of all the bad stuff that's coming out of COVID, I'm actually hoping that this is the start that we've needed to say it's okay to say that you don't know you know something to do with your super or understanding what an ETF is or a managed fund that's okay um but don't stop there you know start asking your friends what do you do um it can just be something really simple we've done some money guides on ladies talk money um and we have found that the response has been amazing and it's just simple questions to ask your friends and family 
simple questions to ask your partner because people just are quite fearful about having these conversations still. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously in a lot of relationship, it's kind of like a taboo subject, right? I mean, we still find when we're doing mortgage applications that we do a credit check on all our clients and we ask in the, uh, you know, kind of the introductory email, can we do a credit check? And, you know, uh, when we do that, sometimes they don't realise we find out everything about, you know, their credit cards and things like that. And amount of times we find out that some partner didn't know the other person had, you know, credit card debt or credit card limits or, you know, were hiding something. And it's, it's because of either fear or just haven't had that conversation. And that's just pretty disappointing, right? When, you know, you're, you're, you're together, but you're kind of having to not talk about something because of fear, I guess. Yeah. So I think if we can start to normalize money-based conversations, if we can start to teach people that it is okay, that you don't necessarily have a a huge understanding of all things finances, but as long as you accept it and, and decide to lean in, that is important because we don't get taught it at school, which blows my mind. And yeah. so it's left all to chance or perhaps to your parents. And for a lot of people, they didn't get a huge amount of, you know, um, knowledge from their parents or the people around them. But that doesn't mean that you're stuck with that situation forever. It can just be very overwhelming. And again, because of all of the financial um jargon that exists and you know a lot of stuff if you look at if you look at brochures and pamphlets and Chris I'm sure you've seen lots of them in the financial advice world like it's typically two um senior people on a beach running like that doesn't really speak to a lot of Australians um so yeah we're trying to shake it up a bit which I think is important now, one of the things I watched in one of your videos, you use the analogy that um, if you had a heart problem, you would go to your heart surgeon and you would have no shame in in, in showing that you had no ideas about the workings of the human heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would easily say to the surgeon, look, I, I'm going to defer to you. And you, you draw the comparison between that and going to a, an expert to get some financial advice. But the problem is with that is that... Um, really fundamentally we do need to understand the fundamentals with your heart I guess you've got to understand you know things like healthy eating and exercise etc uh, etc et but there's a bit more to it isn't there with financial literacy and I mean I guess certainly on the property side of things I see people coming to me all the time with a belief around property that comes out of a lack of financial literacy they don't understand that there are other options they don't understand the traps that they're about to fall into because of a bit of a blind faith in in property. And so, you know, I think that there's a requirement and I agree with you that to not teach this at school is just criminal. Mm. But there is a requirement of each individual to actually start to learn. But if there is shame around that and also if it just seems too hard, I mean, how can, you know, and you say just talking about it, that's fine and that's a good first step obviously, but how can we get over that shame barrier? Do you think just talking about it is going to be enough? Well, yeah. So my, my analogy was around the fact that many people have come to seek advice from me and they've sort of done the thing where they clean for the cleaner. They want to get themselves in a position where then they can come to me and be like, okay, I've done this thus far. Was that good? And, you know, I guess what I was trying to say in that analogy was like, it's okay. You don't have, you don't have to come with shame around, you know, oh, I just wanted to wait to get financial advice until I was out of debt or I had X amount of savings. Like that's, Mm that's not okay. It's okay to, you know, to front up and be like, I'm not hundred percent sure what I've done is correct, but here it is. And let's move ourselves forward. Um, I, I think the shame is a, is a complex one because we often think of money as just numbers on a spreadsheet, but it's absolutely not. It's so much more emotional. Um, you know, it, it's a lot around how we feel about money, what our like money story is, what we learned or didn't learn from our parents and what we watched around us. And that does build this whole emotional story about money, which can live with us forever if we don't mm. recognize it and can be really yeah. detrimental um, to how you make money decisions in the future. So look, I think that your question is a really complex one to solve without doing a lot of work of understanding how do you think about money and how is that impacting the decisions that you are making or you're not making in your world right now? And is that going to lead you to where you want to be from a financial security perspective in the long term? And I, would, I was, sorry, go on. No, 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 you go, sorry. 
I, I was talking to a, a young woman the other day. She's a lawyer, so she's obviously you know educated and in a, in um, a very good job. And she was ta- we're talking about buying her first home, and she was saying to me that you know she'd been sort of delaying it because she was thinking, well, surely I'll meet someone, and surely we'll partner up, and surely we'll do it together. Mm-hmm. And and she's got to a point where she can afford to buy a property herself, but she's got this dilemma of of well, do I buy something that just suits me, and then what happens if if I do meet someone, you know, and so there's, there's all these sort of challenges too early in life, generally, whether you're a woman or a man, I guess, um, yeah. in terms of sort of financial decisions that are, that are quite, um, they're sort of, what's the word? They're sort of mutually exclusive. You know, you can't do two things at once. You choose a path, you know, so that's a real challenge. And, and I guess, how do you, how do you guide people, particularly women through that sort of thinking? What astounds me, Veronica, is how many people come to me with absolutely no idea what they want to do. They go to work every day, they work really hard, and yet they have no clue what they're working for. And so I think it's quite interesting that a lot of people haven't, you know, okay, around Jan 1, we're very good at this is going to be the year and I'm going to change all my things and I'm going to be my best, you know, new year, new you sort of thing. But fundamentally, a lot of people are getting up and going to work every day every year, you know, for decades with no real plan around what they're going to work for. So I think a lot of the work needs to come back to what are the things that are really important to you, not what your parents told you to do, not what your friends are doing, not what everyone else told you to do. Like what do you want to do and what are the values that are super important to you? Because if it's that you want to travel for six months every year, then you're probably going to have a different value set to someone who wants to stay in the same house forever and never travel. So I think getting really clear on that is the first sort of um, foundation piece. And then you can build goals on top of it, knowing that they'll change. But I think this concept of choice fatigue, where there's so many options and there's so many different paths, so you do nothing because you're so overwhelmed, is real in the financial sphere. And people just sit on cash, particularly at the moment, which is not earning anything, especially with inflation figures at the moment. It's it's really scary. Um, and so sometimes it's a matter of doing something rather than waiting for everything to be 100% perfect because you might find that that time never comes. That's a good point. <laughs> and I thought we both, Chris and I, took a breath there to say something. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really good podcast, and that's happened. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. It's a really interesting, and I was why I kind of delayed there. I was just wanted to kind of clarify my thinking on it a little bit because you're right. I think it's really important for them to to take a deep breath and really consider, you know, where they are in life, where you're going. This is both a problem for men and women who are single, or um, and we just don't know when life can change, right? You, you know, not everyone wants to have a partner and go down a family route. That's totally cool, mm. but. A lot of people do want to have a partner and do potentially want to have kids. And um, especially when you start getting around that, you know, you go into your 30s and et cetera, and you're thinking, well, it's, you know, it might happen soon, you know, et cetera. Um, and it could change very fast, right? You could meet someone in a cafe or on, I think they use Bumble now, but, um, <laughs> you know, it can, and I think it's really hard to plan when you're single and you, you're wanting a relationship. And the problem is if you then go use all your assets and invest and buy a property, um, you can then very quickly go, oh, actually, I want that money now because we want to buy a house together. And it's a really difficult thing to kind of to plan for. But I agree with you is kind of going back to your own sort of personal responsibility and your, where you really want to go in life and kind of making your decisions based on that and hopefully being able to be flexible should your life plan change. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why some people shouldn't potentially just go rush out buy a property because, you know, there's just there's unintended consequences that could pop up mm. if you haven't thought about it. Absolutely. And we are very strong with people when they make big decisions like investing in property around the hold period, like the minimum hold period yeah. that we yes. would expect someone has so that they can get the growth that they need from that asset. So, yeah, definitely wanting to make sure that they understand that if this is a path that they're going down, they need to be very clear. You know, I say this both from a property and an investment perspective. You know, I say to people, okay, we're investing in this um, investment portfolio. Ultimately, you can access the money 
whenever you like, but I want you to pretend that this is, you know, a minimum 10 year hold. And that's how you need to think of it. And then if things are happening within the next 10 years, we need to be really confident that you're not going to need to rip that money out because that is for X goal. That's a longer term time horizon. And that's how we've calibrated the risk for that portfolio as well. So that is definitely a consideration that needs to be made up front. And it comes back down to that research you mentioned before about fund ma- fund managers and where it showed that women fund managers might have or had outperformed male fund managers. But it's not so much about gender in that regard. It's because of the 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 number of transactions, the number of changes, the number of deals, you know, with that portfolio. And and there's been quite a bit of research on that that I've read some of the some of that too, that, that people are trying to ride the market, you know, buy in, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, rather than picking quality stock and letting it sit and do its work its magic over time. It's the same principle with property. You yeah. buy a quality property and let it work its magic over time. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think people underestimate too. I think there's a lot of belief around property still to this day. I've been doing a lot of work with first home buyers at the moment and um, there's a lot of a lot of uh talk, a lot of belief that all property goes up in value despite headlines, despite evidence to the contrary. And so when you got that belief, you're not really thinking about timelines. You're yeah, just exactly. thinking, oh, I've got to get in and it doesn't matter if I, oh, then I'll just sell it and I'll get more money and then I'll buy something else. It's actually, well, there's costs associated with that and you might not actually make any money. Um, so it's important for people to understand all of these things. Completely. Transaction costs and tax can erode all of the returns if you haven't factored all of that in. So yeah, completely agree. So Jess, when you, for example, uh, so that was a lot on the single challenges of planning for the future and, you know, the complexities of how your life can change and you've got to be conscious of, you know, rushing into an investment because you could shoot yourself in the foot um, and the whole process could have been a lot of risk for no reward really. In terms of when you get couples, um, you know, obviously one partner will reach out to you or potentially they'll both do it. But how do you kind of make sure that both are really on the same page and you're not kind of always just dealing with one party and um, one's kind of just letting the other party take control? How do you kind of really make sure that they really understand, need to understand that they're both going to benefit going through the process? Yeah. So for us, before we put a plan in place, this is from a financial advice perspective, before we put a plan in place for a couple, we do something called a a goals and values session. And this has evolved as our learnings have, um, you know, as we've progressed and we've learned more and more. And so we make both parties tell us their core values and sometimes they can be really aligned and sometimes they can really compete. And that's really important to flag up front. Yeah. Do you have a counsellor on staff? <laughs> oh, my God. No. So Glenn, my business partner, and I, in our first year of uh, giving advice, we went and did a, um, what's called an ACT therapy course because we real, we realised very quickly that we were ill-equipped to have some of the conversations that we were having. <laughs> it was sometimes quite heated and quite um, confronting. But yeah. um, ACT is about accepting and change therapy. So it's about accepting where you're at and and making commitments to move yourself forward and change, which was quite interesting. Um, But yeah, sometimes I feel we need a marriage counsellor on site as well. Um, (laughs) And we do goals conversations for couples and and both parties need to be at that session. And I had a member, um, a couple that I've said to them, unfortunately, we can't continue working with you if only one of you comes to the meeting. Mm. Because I was really conscious that it was just being defaulted in this instance to the husband. And um, I understand they have a young family, they have small kids. And so it's not always practical to have both people in the room. But I also just felt that there was a level of engagement that wasn't right because I have to give advice and I wanted to make sure that both parties were involved. And since that pretty frank conversation, there's been definitely a huge improvement to her interest. Um, And we have created internally some financial literacy programs for people who honestly just feel like they don't really care and to just get them excited about why they should care and what it could mean for their life, which has had a good impact as well, a big impact as well. I think it was really interesting because someone will be listening to this right now, right? And I doubt they might be there with their partner next to them um, or they could just be wherever they are, right? Who knows where they're listening to this podcast. But, you know, I think a lot of people listening will be considering themselves as the person who does it for their couple or their relationship but they probably haven't really 
thought about it potentially in a lot of depth and thought how important it is to get their partner on their same level because just by not bringing the partner on the journey, it's very easy you can start to, you know, allow them to not be as confident with their financial decisions because they're not getting to make any or they start to feel resentment because they're not getting heard, et cetera. So, you know, that's there's, there's a lot of benefits of even if you are the one doing it for the relationship, you've really got to be putting yourself in the other person's shoes and thinking, I need to also make sure you're a part of all your decisions because before you know it, if a big decision goes wrong, um, et cetera, you really need to both be able to deal with that together rather than, you know, you having to take all the brunt yourself, vice versa, if that makes sense. Oh, my God. We see this in property all the time and, and our, our um, getting started session is all about getting our clients to fill in a wish list each separately and every time I say, right, I want you to fill them in separately and not cheating and not one of you filling for both and not even in the same room if possible and always one of them has a really big smirk on their face <laughs> and it's like, right, that's that's the one that doesn't feel like they're being heard, right? Because it is um, often, uh, you know, you find that one is a little bit more dominant than the other and the other one tends to capitulate and if it goes wrong, the one that capitulated, oh my God, they never let the other one forget get it. And that's not a very nice relationship to be in. Mm. So it's a really good point to get them both on even just for, um, uh, was it uh, damage, was it damage prevention? Yeah. And, you know, I, I actually don't have up-to-date stats on this, but pre-COVID, it was something like one in three people stated that they were financially stressed. And a huge proportion of Australians went to work every day feeling really stressed, especially around money. And so if you look at how that impacts relationships, we know that finances has a huge impact on overall relationship um, satisfaction. And yet we're not having these conversations. We're not having money date nights. We're not having monthly check-ins. We're not recalibrating goals together as a team. You know, in any other context, if that was a, a work team where just one person did all the work and the yeah, other person exactly. just let you choose, like that's not yeah. teamwork at all. And so, you know, we know that this is impacting lives right now. We know this is causing huge amounts of angst and frustration, and yet we're all still really scared to talk about it. I think it's the relationship when the relationship's breaking down as well. Um, and this might be one of the reasons it's breaking down is that just not mm. having the conversation around money. Um Everyone wants certainty, right? And, uh, you know, and then when potentially a relationship is going to end, financial situations going to potentially dramatically change, mm-hmm. um, assets are going to get split, et cetera. And then the fear of going down that route then keeps them in the relationship, um, which isn't a healthy relationship. Um, and so then the fear of not, of where, you know, the relationship ending is stopping the conversation because that could cause it to end, if that makes sense. So it's kind of, it, it, the cascading effects of just not having these conversations can actually be what um, brings the relationship anyway. So it's so important just to have it up front, constantly be talking about it um, before things kind of blow up because it's just too late. Well, yeah. I guess that's a good litmus test, isn't it? Because money is a challenging conversation for people, as you said, you know, particularly for women who who feel a lot of shame and guilt around discussing it. We'll discuss anything, but we don't necessarily discuss money. Um, and, so it's like if you can have a conversation around money, then potentially you can have conversations with other really meaningful about other really meaningful things in your relationship. You know what I mean? So in a way, it's a proxy for a good, healthy relationship anyway. Yeah. And what have you got to lose? Like what? what well, um, a lot. <laughs> you got if you don't do it, you can lose heaps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the question is like if you're not doing anything about it and it's causing tension, mm. Yeah. Having a conversation yeah. and getting on the same page, like that, that's that's a great start. You'll lose more by not doing it. Now we we I, I opened up this uh, conversation by saying that uh, you know the the fastest growing cohort of homelessness in Australia is uh, women over fifty. Mm. Now there are so many reasons. I mentioned the pay gap. I mentioned, you know, less in super, but obviously women have babies, not all women, but if you do have a baby, obviously that takes time out. There's lots of inequity in terms of um, the load, I guess, that typically falls on women. And, and biologically, there's a load that falls on women that, it, that men cannot, doesn't matter how committed they are, they can't take. Mm. Um, so, 
you know, because all of these things are the knock-on effect of this. And also, we also talked to, I mean, Chris, you, you mentioned about clients that have been hiding things from their partner. And, you know, you think, okay, so if you've been in a relationship and then it falls apart, and and if the man has been in control of the money, and if there's been stuff hidden, uh, you're at a disadvantage for starters, you're not going to negotiate as hard on your settlement. I mean, there's there's a whole massive knock-on effect, which does set up women for uh, financial insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. And definitely. And even basic things, Veronica, like when you potentially go on parental leave, if you're having a period where you're being, um, if it's unpaid leave, you know, thinking about things like, is your spouse splitting their super with you for yeah. the period where you're not working? Like there's things that can happen along the way that, you know, mean hopefully that you are as a team, um, both working together to make sure that, you know, the, the female isn't ending up with something like 42% less super or whatever it is that the, the, the stat um, has shown. But yeah, there's definitely um, a huge risk with divorce, death or disablement um, throughout life. And that leaves people in later years in very financially vulnerable positions. And so it's thinking about, well, what do you need to do today to put yourself in a position that's going to you know, mean that you have mitigated as many risks as you can? Yeah, it's interesting when uh, couples, you know, come into a relationship at different stages of life, different backgrounds, different current assets, maybe different debts, um, you know, different professions, different incomes, um, and then you're joining things together. And then, you know, people that it, it's kind of then someone feels like they're brought more into the relationship and then someone feels, you know, uh, a bit disappointed or a bit resentful or a bit ashamed that they haven't got as much but then they earn more money and then one goes on maternity leave and you can very easily see how you know people are doing different things and if you're not really aligned on this kind of joint sort of we're in this together um all of a sudden it it very easily can start to kind of yeah basically start arguments over we're not you know not doing the same or you know exactly if that makes sense it's not equal yeah and, and we also need to be very um, pragmatic about this and say that something like one in two marriages doesn't survive. Mm. And that is not a, it's not the most romantic thing to talk about when you're, you know, giving advice to a couple, but it's important that we have an awareness of this and, and you know, make sure that people are not going to be left in financially destitute situations because they were uncomfortable about having a clear conversation around assets. Yeah, hundred percent. I actually see that it's either two. You either get the two, the couple that are both really keen to take ownership of this, and they're both on the same page, and they're both working on it, uh, having lots of conversations on it, and they are taking action. And when they feel like they're potentially just going through a cruise mode, they kind of r- ramp it up a little bit and keep on going. I then get the find couples who have potentially come a little bit later, and they're both being very conservative. They're both being very um, not wanting to take control of this problem. So they both put their heads in their sand and then they get to potentially, you know, early 40s, even potentially late 40s, early 50s. And they're right now we really need to do something for, you know, our financial future. And unfortunately, depending on what age they are and what they've done, you've got to play catch up and you're, you're starting from a much smaller base and you need sort of compounding takes time. So, you know, sitting either, you've really got to kind of, even if your partner's not taking control of this um, and you're not confident, you've kind of be, got to be the one that really tries to get you both on the same page and moving forward. Yeah, and I think the average Australian gets advice um, when they're about five years out from retirement. Wow, yes. a little bit late then, guys. <laughs> that's scary. And this is why some – and, look, I do. I've met so many people who who have got advice um, but not from advisors. You know, that that is where they're most at risk of this get-rich-quick schemes and certainly a lot of property spookers prey on that type of uh, that demographic. Um, you know, there's a lot of yeah, those people sure. that have used whatever they've had in super which they felt wasn't enough and then tipped it into a off-the-plan, you know, property purchase through their self-managed super fund and lost a lot. Mm-hmm. 100%. And that's one of the, I mean, Jess, you work with the 25 to 45 I do the same in that sort of demographic. Um, but my early years were around that, you know, 55 to 60, 65 range. Exactly what you were saying, just five years to go. And unfortunately, generally speaking, you, you know, you have to work miracles because there's a huge shortfall 
in what they really need in five years' time and where they are today. And the only way to get there is through leverage and, you know, ridiculous sort of investment strategies and things like that, which carry way too much risk for someone. So mm. it's actually damage limitation at that point in time and actually saying, look, you're going to have to change your goals and, um, you know, or potentially work longer or potentially save harder and change your lifestyle today. And all of these things aren't really great uh, and fun conversations and a lot of pain. So I think you're right. Like it's, and then generally speaking, they go to advisors, unfortunately, at that age as well. Mm. Um, and so, you know, um, there's a good trend though, but a lot of that older advisors are kind of moving out and a lot of younger advisors are so, sort of targeting younger people to get them act- taking action with money much earlier. Well, how many how many women oh well, what's the proportion of financial advisors that are women to about 20 percent yeah i was gonna right. say the same yeah yeah so it's and and it's that sort of uh it's a growing proportion mm, i actually don't know the stats on that chris do you know if it's growing i don't know but there's a huge reduction in advisor numbers at the moment um you know we're talking 20%, I think it is in the last year. Um, and, you know, a lot of the uh, older sort of compliance challenges with advice um, are potentially leaving the industry. So we're getting the average advisor age, I think it was 56, maybe five, six years ago. So you had a very 80% men, 80%, you know, the average age was 56. So you had a lot of advisors in their 60s who were men. And that just doesn't appeal to you know, the real problem where you need to be getting advice when you're younger. Mm. Um, and and then you're right, a lot of men. And I actually think that's, uh, yeah, a lot. And that t- and that turns off most, you know, young couples because they just see their advisors and they go, I don't really want to be getting advice from my dad um, or my dad's friend, you know what I mean? And so a lot of people don't seek advice because the advisors out there aren't really who they want to talk to, if that makes sense. Yeah, we have a massive amount of work to do in the advice community to increase diversity in all its forms in those giving advice because then it's going to appeal to a much broader subset of the society that we live in that is multicultural, that is of lots of different ages, um, you know, that have different religious, you know, there's just so much diversity and we are just talking through a gendered lens, you know, we need lots of other types of diversity in advice. Yeah. <laughs> is there a, a sort of an aspirational aspect to it though? I mean, do sort of people think, okay, well, I don't really want to take advice from somebody who looks like me and sounds like me because because they might know as little as I do? Is there ever that sort of, um, I, I guess, a, a, a perception? I think there is. I think there is that in the past you might go like, I want to go seek an advisor that has potentially done what I want to do. And so you seek more of a mentor sort of person. But I, unfortunately, I think a lot of the advisors haven't really, you know, it's like a um, taking care of their own shop, you know what I mean? And mm. uh, haven't really gone and achieved what you want to achieve. Um, well, if they're still so- advising in their 60s, I'd suggest they haven't. <laughs> Just... Mm. So I think that is there is. And then, but I also... This is one of the reasons where we kind of really just stopped working with people in their 50s and 60s is because the challenges today in 2020 or 28, you know, whatever, even if you said 10 years ago, 2010, the challenges for younger people are completely different to how a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old is thinking about the world. Mm. And, you know, what's worked for them over the last 20 or 30 years doesn't necessarily mean that's what the next generation aspire to or will be able to achieve you know, based on the, the the way the world basically was for the last 20 years. So I think if you don't really, and a lot of advisors maybe do 10% of their work with people in their 40s and 30s, majority of their work is clients in their 50s, 60s. So they're not really even getting exposed to the challenges of younger people by the clients they're seeing because they're just not seeing that many. So, you know, you really, I think the challenge is for younger people is they're better off going to see younger advisors who are day-to-day dealing with those problems themselves and actually most of their clients are like that because they really understand where they're at I guess if that makes sense. Although uh, just being devil's advocate here I mean you've both talked about um, a lot of people getting advice too late so they're in their 50s the first time they get advice so they haven't necessarily done anything better well they definitely haven't done anything better than a young person today they haven't necessarily made the best out of any there's no systemic uh 
um, well, there's no systemic situation or structure that has allowed them to benefit. You know what I mean? They haven't actually amassed any fortune. Um, so you could argue that those people have actually just done what is the temptation for young people today, which is basically put bury their head in the sand, just get on with life, you know, put in the too hard basket. I think a lot of um, I think a lot of older Australians have been able to generate a lot of wealth through property. And that's yeah. quite aspirational for a lot of younger Australians living mm. in inner city um, locations that want a house that they own, that they live in. And obviously there's a lot of complexities and conversations that need to go around that. Um, but I definitely think that the younger cohort are much more experiential driven. There is a lot more yeah. um, pressure, whether it's true or not, around you know having all the things you know, they want everything, yeah. they want to go everywhere and they they want property. And at some point they need to realise that there have to be trade-offs. Whereas I think in, in generations gone by, you know, they made a lot of money from property, but they also didn't travel to the same extent. And, you know, they, they probably weren't as experiential driven. Travel was a lot more expensive, certainly when I was growing up. I mean, to go overseas, I, I would say, honestly, the cost of, a, of an overseas, economy class overseas ticket, um, not that you can get one at the moment, um, but is it's not dissimilar now to what it was 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. 20, 30 years ago. Overseas travel when we were growing up. In fact, going to McDonald's was the most exciting thing for me when I was growing up because it meant <laughs> holiday. <laughs> that was when we were allowed to have McDonald's through the drive through because we were going on some road trip to some sort of caravan park somewhere in <laughs> northern New South Wales. It sounds like when I was young. <laughs> I can really say that. It is. I mean, but yes, yeah, so, and obviously with the lowering of cost of travel means that obviously the temptation is is greater because it's more achievable. And so you're more likely to actually make those those trips um, because the the amount of saving as a proportion of your salary to actually get an overseas ticket or be able to buy it on credit card, it's a lot, hell of a lot easier. So I can understand how a, a, a young person is thinking, uh, this is just beyond me. There's no way I'm ever going to buy a house. Bugger it. I'm going to go and have a I'm going to take a month off. Mm. I can totally understand why why that might be the decision that is made on a regular basis. But also marketers are preying on this a little bit with this whole like treat yourself, just put a $1 down payment on a holiday and then pay mm. the rest when you come back. Like because of Instagram and social media and all of that stuff, you know, it's almost becoming this thing where it's like, well, everyone else is doing it, so I'm just going to do it as well and I'll, I'll, pay, it, I'll pay for it somehow later. So there, there's also this, this, you know, very big trap that we need to be across as well and understanding what is instant gratification doing to your longer-term goals and just making sure that you understand the trade-off that you're making financially today. So, Jess, have you got a property dumbo for us? I do. I wish I didn't, but I do. <laughs> nicely. So one of the very first members that we started working with at Fox & Hair came to us with a really good income and he said, I've got something to tell you. And I said, yeah. He said, I have taken out three credit cards and a personal loan to get a deposit to buy my place in Waterloo. Mm-hmm. And he owns an apartment in Waterloo, which unfortunately in New South Wales, in Sydney, and yeah. unfortunately the value of that property hasn't increased as he had expected it too, because of course that was going to be the saving grace. He would take out all this, um, you know, credit card and, and personal loan debt, but it would be fine because soon the property would be worth more and he would just re um, mortgage the place and he could just sweep all of that debt into, into the mortgage and pay a lower interest rate. And yeah. he really thinks through the fact that that's potentially not going to happen. And lo and behold, it didn't happen. So we've been working with him for the last two and a half years and he has just paid them all off. And it has been the most traumatic process for him and his banker and I, and he has told anyone that will listen that that was the, one of the stupidest financial decisions he's ever made. Wow. Interesting. So um, realistically you shouldn't be able to do this. And so the bank's got something called like a genuine savings, et cetera. But did he, um, yeah, essentially how he actually physically were able to, able to do this. Like get personal loan is probably easy to get, but the credit cards, I don't know how he's ended up getting that for a deposit. Maybe he's done cash advance on his credit cards or something. <laughs> um, 
So what did he borrow, like 90 or 95% or something? 95%. And this would have been in 2016. Oh, right. right. Almost the peak of the market as well. Yeah. And was it an existing... A lender that didn't really look at genuine savings or somehow he's been able to dodge the system because, you know, generally speaking, you need to have like three months of savings kind of... of 5% deposit just sitting there. So unless he knew that rule, um, got the money off the personal loan, then waited. So I don't know, it's it's actually, there is a process in the bank application to stop people taking out short-term credit to buy property, but um, (laughs) somehow he's got through the system and yeah. And then he's going to bought a potentially a poor asset, like a, an apartment in an area where they're building a lot of other apartments. So there's no shortage of stock. Um, With the future, I, you know, just banking on future growth. The problem is with the 95% loan, he's not even going to be able to crystallize that debt or, you know, combine that debt till that property's got equity under 80%. So, you know, that property's got to go up a lot um, for did that he, to happen. Just um, did he buy brand new or off the plan? Do you know? Uh, I actually don't know because by the time we started working with him he was already living in the property but it was a new build so mm. I'm not quite sure exactly when he purchased it but yeah. he was living there and he was the first person to live there I believe when he bought yeah. it. Which is another another reason why obviously he's bought a highly risky property even the fact that because brand new off the plan, you're paying generally a premium for being brand new. It's like driving a new car out of the showroom. It's immediately worth less. So then he's got no equity in the first place because he's he's behind. Oh, dear. <laughs> Very wow. For him to learn. And, mm. you know, I think he had a lot of, sh- again, he had a lot of shame about it coming to see me, but he was yeah. in this cycle of huge interest rates and, you know, just, he was earning good money, but it was just all going. And, yeah, it was yeah. some pretty courageous conversations around it. I'm good on him yeah, for advice, want. but obviously his level of pain was so high that he had to do something. So that drove him to get advice and now you've been sort of, he's learnt the hard way, I guess, about about being a bit frugal, right, and being a bit careful with his money. Yes. Yeah. It's funny though, like sometimes we do get clients who are in that position um, where there are a lot of money and a light bulb's gone off and, you know, they've kind of lived it up and instant gratification, which you were talking about and travelled and, you know, entertainment, all these sort of things and money's just kind of been coming in and going out and then they've kind of worked, maybe they've hit a age milestone or they've had a, a, a like, you know, an event happen to them that shocked them and they've got, actually, you know what, I need to take this serious and start saving. Um, and they're saving really hard but to save up a 10 or a 15% deposits a long way, but they're earning a great income. And there is actually an argument that potentially taking out a short-term loan to allow them to get into a property can actually work if they're on a very strong income. And so his strategy might have been okay. It's just that I think he's he's done a couple of things wrong. A, he's gone a bit too soon. He hasn't. He probably should have saved for a bit longer, got a bit more runs on the board, um, and then potentially he's gone and bought a poor asset. So he's just kind of dragged his decision, you know, rushed his decision a little bit there. But there is an argument, though, that when you are in that really strong savings period that a small personal loan can help you potentially just – it is actually a good strategy potentially for some. Not without advice, though, of course. Jess, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. We will put the link in the show notes to your Ladies Talk Money series, video series, because I think it's important that, uh, you know, we all view them and share them amongst people who would benefit. And and I agree with you. I think getting the conversation going, encouraging all of us to talk about money really, but certainly if, uh, you know, I'm blown away by the fact that at 2020, you know, the, the up and coming new generation of young women are still having the sort of psychological barriers uh, in their way and, and beliefs and, and all the things that need to be challenged in order to actually have better financial futures for themselves. You know, I'm astounded. So we've got to do what we can to really get this conversation going so people and women, but all of us, can do better for ourselves. Agree. And thank you so much for having this conversation today. I'm I'm so very passionate about this and, yeah, definitely excited about where Ladies Talk Money can go and getting some expert advice on all of the differing complex areas where we can improve um, female financial literacy in Australia. Amazing, Jess. Really appreciate it. I mean, there's um, 
you know, there's a number of advice outfits coming out in this kind of younger demographic, but I think you and um, Glenn are doing an amazing job in terms of challenging the norms around what financial advice has been and where it needs to go and creating a movement around that. So well played. Thanks, Chris. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Let's go a little bit further on the conversation we just had with Jess around the importance of having these conversations, money conversations with um, when you're in a couple. Now, obviously, any property conversation is very intrinsically linked to money. You can't have one without the other. However... It is amazing the amount of deferment that goes on in relationships. And I guess what I would do, this is not a relationship podcast, but I guess what I would say is that it's a danger sign in your relationship. You can't have these conversations and it might not mean your relationship's doomed. It just means that really it's not as healthy as you might want it to be because if you can't have these sort of conversations, then there's a reason that's stopping you and you need to look into that. And so I'd encourage you to go out there and, you know, talk to a therapist and explore that. Be brave enough to explore it. Your relationship will be better if you're both willing to lean in. And that's a a word or a term that Jess used quite a lot. The thing is though, and I have witnessed this both in my selling career and also in my buying career, that you can go along, you know, often we do live a bit unconsciously. We're sort of going down a path and we're not really – um, questioning it too much or we're not game to question it too much. But the amount of times that I have come across people who have really got to the brink of buying a property and then realised they don't want to be with that person any longer and it's actually been the catalyst to end the relationship. Now, that's pretty drastic but it has happened. And in fact, I even uh, remember back in my selling days, a couple that I'd actually uh, sold their house, they bought another one. And at at the removal, at the day of removal, uh, or the day of moving in, the husband actually said, look, I've actually put all my stuff at the back of the truck and yours is at the front. um, And we're going to unload your stuff and I'm going on to somewhere else. And that's pretty drastic, right? But the reason that, I don't know why that relationship came to that, you know, that head at that point, it was pretty harsh and and I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that. But the reality is that these big decisions do bring to the fore a lot of um, subconscious stuff for us because they are really challenging decisions and buying a property is extraordinarily challenging. So I guess what we're saying in this boot camp is have the conversations before you get to the brink and and staring over the edge of that brink is what forces you to realise that you don't want your life to look like that anymore. You know, maybe those relationships were salvageable. Maybe uh, the, having those conversations, as Jess has suggested, maybe having money conversations actually does have a positive impact on your relationship, as a lot of these studies have indicated. So I'd encourage you to do it because the, the flip side of that is really catastrophic. And if there's stuff that needs to be dealt with it, it doesn't go away. Yeah, I think there's two parts to the property side. I think if you're thinking about going in, whether it's your first home or upgrading or buying an investment property um, and you're engaging with a professional um, and you're going to reach out, have a phone conversation, you know, everyone's got smartphones nowadays. Um, It's really easy to do a three-way call and I would just, if you're going to do it, then I would get your other part, party involved and ask them, to, the advisor, to have a three-way call with you. And even if there are different offices and, you know, doing different things, it's so easy to kind of patch everyone together every day uh, today. You don't have to do like a teleconference. Um, and that just that simple thing will get you involved from day one. And then every conversation that you have, if it's an important conversation, it's not just, you know, ask, answering a couple of questions, then try to get back that, you know, your, your other party involved in that conversation just because it it allows you get that third person um independence there allowing you to really think through your decision that's actually getting prepared to buy a property and then you know this is a really a call out for buyers agents the biggest one of the biggest value adds i see with buyers agents is that independent sounding board to question you when you've got those niggles and it's not really matching your brief to stop you kind of buying the wrong property because you haven't thought through something because you've fallen in love with something else and you haven't been, no one's there to really stop you buying the wrong property. And so I think that's why it's so important to have that third party there 
with the property decisions and you're all on the same page questioning each other rather than just doing it alone as a couple. I highly encourage you to join our Facebook Lives, Homebuyer Academy AUS, Homebuyer Academy Oz. I'll put the link in the show notes and we'd love you to join us every Wednesday night at 7.30pm. When I say we, this is a side project of mine. I have another business called Home Buyer Academy, and we're looking at building your first home buyer guide, which is an online course, a mentoring program for first home buyers. So, if you would like to actually make better decisions as a first home buyer, and you'd like to get online and have live Q and A every Wednesday night, seven thirty p.m. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Fred Chibester, the co-founder of finder.com.au. We have a very wide-ranging discussion that goes from frugality through financial literacy right through to Bitcoin. Please tune in. There's a lot of really practical stuff, but there's some real big sky stuff as well. And I have to say, I'm still struggling with Bitcoin as a concept, but... I'm a lot closer to understanding it now as a result of this interview, so please join us. Now, we realised when we recently recorded a Q&A episode that we would love to answer more of your questions. So we want to make it a little bit easier for you to send them through to us. So we've gone and set up a new email account, questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, which guests you'd like to hear from, and what your burning questions are. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. So please press the subscribe button and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.